Hello everyone, welcome back to another episode of A Lawyer and a Policy Analyst Walk Into a Bar. Thank you for staying with us so far throughout this year. You know, 2020 has been a tough one, but we want to keep bringing you these interesting topics. And today we have another one. We're asking, overstaying or progressing? We're discussing term limits of political leaders in the Caribbean. And with us today, we have a guest, uh, Cynthia Barrow-Giles. I'll let her introduce herself in a bit. But as always, I'm the lawyer, Jadrick Cummings. And I'm Delano D'Souza, the policy analyst. And like Jadrick said, we're discussing something very uh, important to the region. We are wondering if our political leaders are overstaying up, or are we progressing as a people and our democracies? So we're discussing political term limits in the Caribbean. And of course, we have uh, with us a very influential and important guest, uh, Cynthia Barajas, and, and anybody who's read anything about Caribbean politics would know the name. Uh, so we want to thank her for uh, taking some time out to come in the pod and discuss this important topic with us. We're going to give her a few seconds just to introduce herself and then we're going to jump right into the pod. So Ms. Barajai, over to you. Hi, good morning. Thank you, Delano, um, for inviting me to participate in your, I think what is very important, um, especially for young people and for all persons or people who are interested in democratic governance and other issues which you may in fact discuss in your podcast. Well, as you said, I am um, a senior lecturer in the Department of Government, Sociology and Social Work. I do a lot of work on Caribbean governance, specifically in relation to issues of corruption and elections and gender and, and generally issues of, of good governance. I'm not sure how influential I am, but um, nonetheless, <laughs> I am um, dealing with work on the Caribbean specifically. Right, I can say you're very influential, especially to the young ones like myself coming up. Uh, we, we do revere the work that you do. Uh, quite a lot. Uh, but just by bear some background, uh, in light of the recent elections in the Caribbean where several incumbent political leaders were re-elected to serve additional terms in office, uh, the question of term limits for prime ministers or heads of government has, has again uh, been brought to the fore. In particular, the election of Vincentian Prime Minister Dr. Ralph Gonsalves to an unprecedented fifth consecutive term in St. Vincent and the Grenadines and Roosevelt Skerritt of Dominica, uh, who I believe is in his fourth consecutive term as Prime Minister, has renewed the call for constitutional reform. Now, apart from that, even if we look at our Caribbean history, uh, it's, it's also littered with long-serving Prime Ministers. If we think about St. Kitts and Nevis, Dr. Denzel Douglas, who served four, four terms from 1995 to 2015. St. Lucia, we have Dr. Kenny Anthony, who served three terms from 1997 to 2006, and then again from 2011 to 2016. Of course, I mentioned St. Vincent and the Grenadines with Prime Minister Dr. Ralph Gonsal, but he wasn't the first. Uh, Sir James Mitchell served 17 years in St. Vincent and the Grenadines. Uh, we could think about the late uh, Owen Arthur, who served uh, from 1994 to, to 2008 sorry, in Barbados. Uh, PJ Patterson in Jamaica from 1992 to 2006. So we have a lot of history in terms of long-serving prime ministers. Uh, so the question for you, Ms. Barajas, is uh, what are your views really on Caribbean leaders serving for extended periods of time? I mean, broadly speaking, are our leaders overstaying or are they helping their nations progress? Thank you again, Delano. That's a very complicated question. And, and I, although you say it has um, read his head again in the wake of those elections taking place in the Caribbean, I'm not sure to what extent people are very conscious or aware of exactly what is meant by term limits, because there are different incarnations of exactly what um, tenure or term limits imply. 
Now, mm-hmm. you, you spoke a lot about what has been taking place in the Caribbean and what is the state of play uh, insofar as the Caribbean is concerned. I want to say, however, that um, some of the examples that you gave, I do not ex- exactly regard them as overstaying, um, the, over, overstaying in, in government. For example, you made reference to Kenny Anthony, who served in office from 1997 to really um, 2006. Essentially, what happened in St. Lucia is that you had a prime minister who served two terms. The party's constitution actually limited him to serve as party president, I think, for two terms. And therefore, mm-hmm. by definition, he would only be in parliament um, as serving as prime minister if the party won the election for two terms. I think the most obvious examples of the sit-tight, what we call the sit-tight um, politicians in the Caribbean right now, really your own country, which is St. Vincent the Grenadines, and of course, Dominica. And both countries are a little bit problematic for a number of reasons, which I'm hoping that we may be able to discuss um, during the course of um, this discussion. I think basically I, um, I support the idea of term limits or time limits. But when we speak about the English-speaking Caribbean in, in particular, I'm very conscious of the fact that we can't speak of um, adjusting our constitution and engaging in constitutional re-engineering in order to limit the term of office of just a prime minister. And the reason why I'm a little bit reticent to say that I support the idea of term limits in relation to the prime ministers in the Caribbean is because we need to undertake larger um, constitutional reform to ensure that when we put in place or that we have the capacity to put in place the term limits to achieve what it is that we want to achieve. The other thing is that based on what your introduction it is very clear that you're looking at it in relation to two things. One is unstated, one is stated. The, the first thing is the what is the direct connection between applying term limits and, and, and exactly how they're going to be implemented. And of course, the extent to which term limits will assist in democratic consolidation or renewal or advancement um, in the region. And the second thing is to what extent if we're talking about progress and we don't think about the political, to what extent or democratic, to what extent does term limit um, have an impact on say, for instance, economic and social progress. So I think we can discuss it in those terms, but um, basically let me just say that I am a supporter of term limits in general, but I understand mm-hmm. that in, in talking about term limits, that in order for us to have it put in place effectively we need to also consider some um, important adjustments to our constitutional arrangements, because as you know, our constitutional legacy um, carries with it certain things that if we apply term limits, it will have implications for the overall functioning of our model. So I want to end here in relation to that for now. Quite so. And, and, and you are correct. I mean, I think those are the dynamics that we want to sort of engage with this discussion uh, in. I mean, we... we we spoke. I spoke earlier about some of these countries who have, in 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 my view, and in some people's view, have had extended time uh, in in leadership. Uh, uh, but there are also some countries in the region, and of course, I know you'll be very familiar with Guyana, um, where there are term limits in place for for the president, uh, two terms. Likewise, I think in Haiti as well, the Dominican Republic also has uh, a term limit, uh, which doesn't allow them to run for more than four years consecutively, and so on. The Cayman Islands as well, under their new constitution. Uh, I think has uh, some form of term limit in there in terms of two straight terms. Um, St. Kitts and Nevis, as we know, recently attempted to make uh, this amendment uh, to their constitution uh, under, I think, this present administration, but it did not come to fruition, obviously, because of the the well the pushback from the opposition and what is required exactly to, to actually implement constitutional change and you you spoke to to the legacy to the constitutional legacies that we have and even the difficulties in even going about changing the constitutions as we've seen with referenda in the region so far 
in terms of these countries, in your mind, has term limits been working for them, these countries in the region that currently have term limits in place? I mean, if you think about Guyana, where um, some people still consider Barrett Jagdio the de facto leader in Guyana, despite him not being allowed to serve as president, uh, how has this these um, term limits been playing out in these countries? I'm not familiar with some of the countries that you have identified, because unfortunately, I've tended to focus a lot on the um, Commonwealth Caribbean and not the mm-hmm. entire English-speaking Caribbean. I, I guess that's one of the limitations of scholarship in the, in the region. Um, I know a little bit about Haiti, and I also would like to just to add to what you said a while ago, that we saw one of the, perhaps one of the most authoritarian democracies, I like to use the two together in relation to Cuba, but we saw recently a constitutional amendment in Cuba in 2019, where they have mm-hmm. actually introduced um, term limits. So a president can serve two terms, is no longer unlimited. So that is a, that is progress. Um, in relation to Guyana, yes, you had this constitutional reform which limited the person who was elected into the office of the president um, during, of course, the general elections to two terms. Part of the problem of the Caribbean is really not necessarily a constitutional one. So we have to deal with it at the level of what are some of the constitutional problems. And secondly, I think we need to look at what are some of the other political problems. And so when I think about Guyana, at the political level, they tend to, to adjust a political culture, which will not automatically change given the constitutional change that, that, that occurred. So in the context of Guyana, yes, we, had the, we have had historically the strongman um, you know, the strongman image, the charismatic political leader. You have people, of course, like Jagan, and before before him, you had, um, what's, the, what's the former president of Guyana, um, Burnham. Hobbs Burnham, uh, yeah. Hobbs Burnham, and then now we have Jadio, and Jadio seemed to be um, larger than life, but the problem, I think, is one, not necessarily of the Constitution, the problem is one of the political parties, and the extent to which the political parties have, in fact, engaged in a process of development, um, a a process which would in fact ensure that they have a very defined succession policy. And when we look at the Caribbean, and I think um, St. Vincent and Grenadines is probably a very good example of that. We have a situation where because political parties have been dominated by charismatic political leaders, in combination with the fact that they, these leaders tend to serve an indefinite period in government once they have elected, and Ralph Gonzaga is a classic example of that, we have the situation where unfortunately they have not put in place um, any succession planning. Um, they have in fact prevented um, a number of politically ambitious young people, particularly young men, mm-hmm. from actually contesting for leadership positions within the political parties. And to that extent, therefore, we are continuing to be defined by a situation where one man, um, to the detriment of the nation, has in fact controlled the political agenda for an extended period of time. As I said, um, we had that situation in St. Kitts Nevis, and of course, more clearly, we are seeing it in St. Vincent. The political party seem to have, the ruling political party seem to have a difficulty in finding a successor to Rav Gonzalez. We also saw it, of course, in, we've seen it in Dominica, where um, Roosevelt Skerritt has been in office for an extended period of time. Um, and so the question for us is, should we not look beyond just merely the constitution when we think about issues of term limits, um, when we think about the phenomena of the type political leader, and I just want to say in relation to the Caribbean, that at least we have moved away somewhat from the type political um, leaders. We only have a few instances of such. And, and, and look very closely at the party's constitutions and what the party, parties are doing to encourage 
greater democracy and participatory democracy at the level of the political parties, which will result in a situation where we'll have a contest, a real genuine contest for the leadership of the political parties. To date, we don't see that. And I'm mindful of the fact, or I remember very clearly that um, more recently, we saw a situation in the Bahamas where I think it was Alfred Sears, one of the senior members of the progressive um, Labour Party in um, the Bahamas, actually daring to um, contest for the leadership position of that party. And he was crucified. He was crucified. He, he, the people yeah, generally yeah. thought that yeah, he was Yeah, they, they believe that you have to wait your turn. You, you have know, to wait your turn. And the question bright. is, what, what is your How turn? You? What is your turn? And my concern is that in doing that, what is doing to people like perhaps you, Delano, if you have some political aspirations, is that he's saying to you, not only must you wait your time, but your time may be 40 years down the road, where you are you are now 60-something years old, where you're thinking mm -hmm. about retiring, etc. So it is really frustrating the ability of a number of young people to make the kind of contribution to the political space, the economic space, and the, and the social space that we'd like. And it is one of the unfortunates um, in the region. Uh, you spoke about Prime Minister Ralph Gonzalez and commenting recently on the situation in Guyana. Um, Prime Minister Gonzalez was quoted as saying by the BBC that this is a matter for the people to decide and that there is really a shortage of quality leadership in the region and why should we therefore impose artificial limits? Uh, do you see any truth to this? Uh, is there a shortage of quality leadership in the region or is it just him uh, trying to you know, kind of stay longer uh, or perhaps overstaying, so to speak? Delano, how do we know whether or not there's quality leadership in the Caribbean when people have not been given the opportunity to make the contributions? In the mm -hmm. first place, I think, as I said before, we need to look at the political parties. The political parties is not a, the political parties in the region as they are organized are not very democratic institutions at all. They stifle people. Mm -hmm. You can't afford to um, not show loyalty to the political leaders. What they do is that you are marginalized within the political parties. And if you are if you are marginalized in the political parties, you do not stand a snowball chance in hell in being selected to contest an election. Far less being in a position where you could challenge the hegemony of the political leaders. Now, so there are two views. One is that, you know, term limits will enhance um, a democracy, and I ascribe to that view. But on the other hand, I'm very conscious of the fact that when we impose um, term limits, it is also a very undemocratic, um, I would think, an undemocratic, an undemocratic move as well. So it's really a, con a conundrum. We are trying to engage and achieve greater democracy. But the means by which we attempt to do so may be as undemocratic as what we are trying to resolve. And that is a problem. So at the end of the day, we have to ask ourselves, what, what is the greatest evil? Or what, which one would cause the least harm to the state? And what we are saying is that the least harm to the state has to be in ensuring that we create a situation where more people would be able to be given the opportunity to make their contribution. But I understand what um, the Prime Minister is saying, that one of the unfortunates um, in, in, in countries like the Caribbean, especially the Eastern Caribbean, where we are dealing with populations the size of, say, 70,000 to, say, 280,000 people. Barbados has been one of the largest of the Eastern Caribbean countries. We are dealing with an issue of a critical mass. And the unfortunate thing is that although more and more people are being um, beneficiaries of an education system because we have governments, and certainly um, St. Vincent is one of those, governments who have been supportive 
of um, allowing their citizens to access tertiary-level education. I say St. Vincent has done very well on the Ras Gonzalez in relation to that. One of the unfortunates is that we have just so many people who are in a position where, in fact, they can make the kinds of contribution domestically and internationally that we'd like. Now, I, 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 I'm a little concerned about the statement I just made a while ago because I don't want anybody to misconstrue the, the point I'm making. It's not to say that it's only education, education, educated people and university educated people who can make a contribution mm -hmm. to the state. Yeah. But mm -hmm. by and large, most of our political leaders, most of our, polit our politicians, um, mm -hmm. especially since one would say the decades of the 1980 onwards, have been coming from that educated class. Because we understand that statecraft requires some technical knowledge. Statecraft mm -hmm. requires some skill that people who are generally not so educated, but who are immensely intelligent, perhaps cannot make the contribution. But having said so, I also recognize that many of those politicians ought not to be, ought not to be in politics at, at all. And that, in fact, a lot of the work that is being done in terms of policy and the formulation of policies actually been done by a very competent technocratic elite in the Caribbean. Mm -hmm. So I, I just don't want people to misconstrue what I'm saying, but I understand what the Prime Minister is saying because in the first instance, to limit a person's ability to contest an election is in fact restricting the person's constitutional rights, is, in, is restricting the person's political rights, and at the same time, it is also limiting um, civil society, the electorate, from you know, having the ability to select a person that they feel is the most competent and best individual to lead the country out of whatever the country needs to be led out of. So in a sense, it does have a point, but we have to balance that to the negatives. And the negative of somebody staying in office for so long is what we call the moral hazards. And very often what people have done is to make association between length of stay in office, especially mm -hmm. where you're operating on the parliamentary system, and the, 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 the possibility, I'm not saying that that is in fact the case. And we certainly have not investigated that in the, in the Caribbean in any rigorous manner. The potential for corruption. Yeah, I was about to ask if we did any real research in terms of linking the length of stay, quote unquote, to, to, to instances of corruption and so on in the region. No, we have not done that, but there is a general assumption, again, based on work which has been done elsewhere, particularly in the African on the African continent, and certainly um, in Asia and Latin America, that um, Latin America, that length of stay in office leads to a kind of um, attitude on the part of um, long stay, the sit-tight political leader, that they're invincible, that they are right, that without them nothing can be done, a sort of um, non-carish attitude, a sort of dismissal attitude, what some people have, have called an arrogance, the arrogance factor, which sometimes can lead mm -hmm. to um, an abuse of incumbency. And once we talk about an abuse of incumbency, we are in fact talking about corruption. And the problem with with, with, with that, and some people may reject what I'm saying, is that unfortunately people believe that to be corrupt means that you just pilfer the state resources to benefit yourself. Exactly, but there's so many different forms that we don't take into consideration. Precisely, we don't think about those things. Corruption is much broader than that. So on the one hand, I support what the Prime Minister said, but there's always a caveat. Um, you have to balance that with um, um, the potential of the, the negatives and doing harm to the state by frustrating otherwise very competent and politically ambitious people who can make a contribution. Now you ask if I have any evidence. Um, the truth of the matter is that in some states, and again, I, I don't have data in front of me to speak specifically to that data, 
but there seems to be some connection between um, you know, incumbency, length of, length of stay in office, and economic progress. The idea is that, of course, um, what, some, what some theories are arguing, people who have done research elsewhere, is that, and, and, I, and I certainly think that if we go, you, 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 I think you made reference to the country of the Dominican Republic in the Caribbean, mm -hmm. which is not English speaking. But one of the reasons it has been argued that the president has been re-elected and they have actually adjusted the constitution in 2015, not in the direction that we are speaking, yeah. but actually in the opposite direction. Mm -hmm. And the reason that that is so is because apparently, based on research which has been done, um, there is the view that that particular president had done so well in relation to the tax situation, in relation to getting the handle on inflation in the country, so inflationary politics becomes very important in that context, mm -hmm. that the people of Dominican Republic were actually um, convinced that the person who was most capable um, of leading the, the Dominican Republic yeah. in the future was in fact the, is in fact the current um, president. So I'm saying that there's a lot of work which needs to be done. I don't have any um, evidence right here to say to you that con um, conclusively when a person is in office for a long period of time, that the economy does much better as against when a person is in office for five years. Um, we have not that, done that kind of systematic work. But, uh, and, and so I can only speak in generality. The only evidence I have in relation to the Caribbean um, at hand immediately is what occurred in the Dominican Republic based on research which has been done. Um, where St. Vincent is concerned, and, and, and by the way, Delano, if you just allow, permit me a, a moment, sure. it is equally true that we should not only just focus on the prime ministers. Because we have focused mm -hmm. on Ralph Gonzalez, for instance, we have noted his presence and we have noted the presence of um, um, Roosevelt Skerritt. The fact of the matter is that we must equally pay attention to opposition political leaders who have remained in opposition as political leaders for more mm -hmm. than two right. terms and who have mm -hmm. refused. And have not successfully, yeah. Who have refused. Who, yes, they have failed at every single election. And again, mm -hmm. If Ralph Gonzalez has been in office for five consecutive terms, it means that somebody has been in office, has been in opposition, <laughs> yeah. um, position for mm -hmm. five consecutive terms, time, yeah. uh, maximally, or um, at, at a maximum and minimally, as far as I'm aware, in St. Vincent, for three consecutive terms. And that is a problem. Yeah. So not only should we consider um, political leaders in terms of those who actually win, but we must also consider mm -hmm. those who actually manage the political yeah, parties. You have, you have to know when they give. You have to know when you've tried and, and were unsuccessful, and that you know perhaps the opposition party needs to reorganize itself in order to, to be able to unseat the, the incumbent. And I think in the region we also have that problem as well. I mean, even coming out of St. Kitts after the recent uh, election, we heard that um, Dr. Denzel Douglas was going to step down as opposition leader, and to my knowledge, he, he remains in that position to this day. So I'm not sure, you know, I, so I really take your point about that. Yeah, but the point of the matter is that, as I said to you, we need to look at the constitutions of the political parties. We need to look at the structures within the political parties. We need to look at what is being done and how young people and younger people um, are being shaped and prepared and nurtured um, to succeed the political leaders. And when we look at the constitutions in the political parties across the Caribbean, unfortunately, they have not dealt with the issue of succession the way they are to deal with. The most recently, um, well, I did some work in, in, in St. Kitts Nevis after the Labour Party lost the election. And among the recommendations we made, um, given the state of the party at the time, was that in the immediate period, the person who to us and um, Tennyson Joseph and 
Dr. Devon Ishio, part of the team that went to St. Vincent, mm -hmm. to um, St. Kitts University to oh, Sabu. Kitts, yeah. And the conclusion that we came to was that in the immediate period, the person who was ideally suited to lead the party in the immediate period was in fact Denzel Douglas um, himself. What we had suggested to him is that while he, re he retained the leadership of the party for X period of time, we had seen a number of young people, rising stars within the political party, who we thought would make fantastic political leaders. And that in the interim, what should have been done is that they should be nurtured and prepared to replace the, the um, Denzel Douglas. I don't think we anticipated that he remain for another election or in fact, after the election, but would come not from St. Vincent, from, um, sorry, St. Kitts Nevis, is that the party is now undertaking um, in, uh, you know, wide scale discussion. Mm. They are actually reading the document that we gave them, which was a hundred and, and something odd pages. They are now mm -hmm. going through it in order for them to make some changes. And from what I was made to understand, the party is now considering um, replacing um, Denzel Douglas. But the point is Denzel Douglas, like many other political leaders in the Caribbean, have a stranglehold of the political party because they have been there mm -hmm. for so long that if they yeah. do not voluntarily exit in the absence exactly. of I don't any think anybody has, yeah, exactly. Precisely, in the absence of any party constitution, a constitutional provision with, of the political party, which specifically states that you cannot hold the position as party leader for more than two terms, it's virtually impossible to remove somebody from leadership when the people that support the political parties, the people who are former members of the political parties and who will turn up to vote, consistently support that individual as the political leader. And these are some of the things mm -hmm. that we have to deal with. That's the reality of the Caribbean. Yeah, definitely. I, I mean, while we're on the subject of St. Kitts, Proven Innes, which is, of course, you know, one of the former governor generals of St. Kitts, uh, he was speaking about succession planning in an interview uh, recently, and he said, um, after basically after after they've done two consecutive terms, referring to leaders, they tend to uh, be out of control. And we spoke a little bit about corruption as well, and are more concerned about their legacy and their place in history, and much less concerned about the wishes of the people and succession planning itself. So, I mean, based on your experience, and you've given you've mentioned some of these things before, and your um, your scholarship and so on, uh, does Sir Probin's assessment have any weight? Um, based on what we have seen, based on some of the comments I have heard from some political leaders in the Caribbean, and again, that is just antidotal because we don't do the kind, we don't have sufficient, again, critical mass to do the kind of work that we need to do in the Caribbean. And then a lot of us are in academia, as you know, Delano, and we are burdened by our yeah, teaching. definitely. Teaching we do so not don't have get, no time to Everybody expects us, Delano, as you are a young scholar, you are a young academic, you have a number of more years left at the university. But what you will understand is that in the absence of finances to undertake the research mm -hmm. that you need to undertake, you have to put your hands in your pocket. So it's, you, you can't continue to do that over a sustained period of time. So that what we tend to do is to just do what is comfortable for us, what will not mm -hmm. cost us too much money because you do not get the kinds of funding, certainly not to do the kind of work that we political scientists do. Maybe you'll get money because you are an economist, but where political science is concerned, they think that political science is, is not something that is important until on an, until on unless there is an, a political crisis, or until on unless there is an election, and then the only voices they want to hear from are the political scientists, because I don't hear them call on the economists and the so forth and the sociologists to speak. It's always the political scientists. 
but they, they do not give us the kind of funding and the kind of support. They do not also open their doors to us in relation to actually giving us the kind of information that we want. And I say mm -hmm. that, I am conscious of the fact, and maybe I'm running, running ahead of it, but I'm conscious of the fact that there was a book published on um, Antigua and Barbuda, I think sometime in the 1990s, called Caribbean Time Bomb. And when I read that book, that book was a real ex expose of what was taking, the kind of um, corruption that was taking place mm -hmm. in Antigua and Barbuda, for instance. What was shocking was the kind of access that a foreign journalist was given was to, able to get, um, yes, I was heard able to get when we can't get our foot in. We can't get our foot in. We can't ask them those questions because they are suspicious of us. But the bottom line is that we are more protective of their reputation than, in fact, mm -hmm. some foreign world. Um, I'm doing. So the book was, of course, banned in, in, in Antigua. So I'm saying in the absence of doing some work, what we do is to speculate. What we do um, what we do is to speculate. If we work maybe a little more closely, some of the economists who do some work on economic growth and so forth in the countries, we're in a better position to make that, that statement. But I agree with him, I agree with the sentiments raised that generally speaking, when we look across the Caribbean, based on some of the statements I've heard coming out of some of the political leaders, in fact, you don't even have to be there 10 years. Mm -hmm. The position of a prime minister is a very powerful and it can be intoxicating. And very so true. they have political leaders who are in office for less than five years. And when you listen to them, when you hear the behavior, outrageous. I listen to my prime minister of St. Lucia. I've heard him speak in parliament. I have heard his dismissive tone of the um, presiding officer of the lower house, who is the speaker of parliament. And if that is um, coming out of an individual who has only been in office for less than three years, God forbid what is going to happen if that individual, I'm not saying don't e re-elect him, but if the person is re-elected for another five years, God forbid what is going to happen in St. Lucia in terms of an attitude towards people and an understanding of what Jim, of accountability is all about. God forbid what is going to happen. So I'm sympathetic to, to the statement um, made by the former um, Governor General of St. Kitts. And, I, and, I, and basically, I agree. I just wanted to say and to, and to quote one of the most highly respected um, political scientists of all time. I said, well, certainly in the, in the, in the, nine, in the 20th century. And, and that is Juan de Linz. And Juan de Linz made a statement many, many moons ago, which I think um, is pertinent to the discussion that we have here. And what he said is that, you know, we can distinguish between authoritarian states and democratic, and democratic states. How can, we how can we make that distinction between them? Because it seems almost obvious. But what he says is that when you look at authoritarian states which are led by autocrats, they do not rule with an expiry date. That is, that is the distinction. That is what defines an authoritarian state. Autocrats do not rule with an expiry date. They can continue forever. Mm -hmm. Contrast that to a democratic society. Well, Democrats rule with an expiry date. So autocrats do not rule with an expiry date. Democrats are supposed to rule with an expiry date. But what we have seen in some Caribbean jurisdictions, given the examples that you raised, is that it appears that some of those Democrats are in fact ruling without an expiry date. That is the problem. And especially given the fact that as prime ministers, they, they can call an election that suits them. Very much Not so. when and it is constitutionally good, but when it suits yeah. them, because we have no fixed term of office. And the mm -hmm. question remains, uh, the question that needs to be asked is whether or not we should continue for constitution where a single individual has the right over election mm -hmm. timing, which mm -hmm. I find is very dangerous mm -hmm. and undemocratic. Yeah, we, 
Mm, and we, we had an earlier episode this season, actually, where um, Dr. Christina Hines, of course, whom you know, and Peter Wickham, we actually discussed that topic. And uh, it was, it was uh, well received by our listeners because, of course, the whole notion, and, and that's my position as well. Why should the prime minister be walking around with the election date in his back pocket, as Peter Wickham put it? And it's a concern, I think, that, uh, of course, needs to be considered. Um, but Sir Ronald Sanders, of, of course, you know, the Antigua ambassador to the U.S., um, he took up this issue of... Um, of um, political term limits recently in an editorial in 2019 and he reminds us uh, in his editorial that the party leaders election alone uh, does not deliver government uh, or the prime ministership in fact he was saying that the party's representatives of course as we know must win the majority of the electoral areas or constituencies uh, but basically uh, what Sir Ronald Sanders was saying is that uh, because of the what, what he termed as safeguards in terms of their ability to be removed from office via, of course, a revolt um, by um, party MPs, as well as a vote of no confidence by a majority of parliament, and as well thoroughly by the, the will of the people in a general election, his argument was perhaps that we don't need um, term limits. But of course, in response to that, I, in my mind, I thought to myself, how often do you hear about a revolt, a revolt of, of, within the party itself? And how often does a vote of no confidence actually pass uh, in parliament? So in my mind, out of the three that he put forward, it's really only the will of the people that is, in my mind, more or less, quote-unquote, effective of what we've seen. Uh, so he really, he's asking, you know, I, I, mean, I guess I'm asking you, uh, in your mind, are these things safeguards um, that, that kind of negate the need uh, for us to look closely at the party constitutions as well as term limits in general? Um, let me put it in this way. When I look at the recent um, elections in the Caribbean, what we are seeing is a situation that is, that is um, in comparison to an earlier period where we had a tendency for the electorate to um, elect into office one political party over a consistently long period of time. So that, for instance, you can look at Trinidad and Tobago, classic example, where you had the PNM being elected into office literally from even before um, in, um, independence. Great is the PNM. Until, <laughs> PNM until 1986. For literally about a 30-year period, you had one political party in government. What we have been seeing in Trinidad and Tobago since the 1980s is an alternation, a real alternation, which is what democracy mm -hmm. is about, an alternation of, of office between um, political parties. So in the first period, we haven't seen that alternation. We are seeing a hegemonic political party, a party which was predominant and which controlled a very powerful prime minister since his death. And 1986, we have been seeing an alternation between two major political parties. So in a sense, what we are seeing is that what I call the maturing of Caribbean democracy, or what I think of Unnecessary call, but I think of the maturing of Caribbean democracy, with a few exceptions. St. Vincent and the Grenz is one, and of course, um, St. Kitts Nevis is another. And there are real questions as to whether or not in those two countries we have seen really a consolidation of democracy in a way that somebody like Samuel Huntington speaks about consolidation of democracy. But in more recent time, what we have been seeing is that the electorate, for a variety of reasons, have been reluctant to elect into office one political party outside of those two cases that we spoke about a while ago for more than for more than one term or two terms so that when for instance if i look at st lucia since 2006 we have had a situation where no political party has been able to entrench itself in office for more than a single term so in a sense st lucians have in fact signaled that they want term limits when however you put it to people in a referendum they can say no they have, they have said no so we can go to Grenada, however, where that party has won 
um, elections since I think the collapse of the Tilmer Thomas administration for two consecutive terms and um, two consecutive terms where the opposition was totally wiped out of parliament. What we are seeing outside of those um, few countries, that alternation between either five year period, which is a single term, or in fact, um, two terms. So it has rightened himself and in, and in that sense, um, he's correct. Do we really need that constitutional um, you know, provision when in fact the people of the Caribbean seem to be saying that that is what we want? But the constitution provision would give us that kind of invincibility provision that currently does not exist um, at all in most parts of, of the Caribbean. Um, so yes, I'm saying that I support him in that way. Um, but there are other issues I think that we need to take in consideration when we think about um, you know, constitutionalizing term limits. We can't constitutionalize term limits, term limits effectively in my mind if we are going to continue to operate all of the conventions of Westminster as we know Westminster. Because in the first place, how do you, how do you limit a prime minister to five to, uh, um, term limits? without saying that you're also going to constitutionalize um, time limits. In other words, what is the implication for the no confidence motion, which as you rightly mm -hmm. said, has not been effectively used in the Caribbean, but the possibility yeah. exists. It has happened. It has happened in St. Lucia, it has happened mm -hmm. in Barbados, and it's happened in a couple other jurisdictions. How do you ensure then that a person who has agreed to limit themselves to office for two terms will be given the opportunity to serve two full terms if we continue to rely, especially in a context of a close election, we continue to rely on the no confidence motion. Because, you know, it, it has been known to happen. So how do we do that? What kind of guarantees do we need to place, put in place? And what I'm suggesting, therefore, is that not only should we think about, or when we think about term limits, we should also be thinking about time limits, which means, therefore, we may have to do something similar to what the British has have done mm -hmm. in, in ensuring that there's a time limit um, and therefore fixed term except except in the context of an unusual circumstance Just and where both yeah. of the or all political parties have agreed, agreed. Um, to forego yeah. that constitutional stipulation we need to we need to think um, about those issues because Westminster as we know it will not work in the same in the same way if we do so and it would really be unfair to a prime minister um, mm -hmm. to especially if the prime minister pilots that bill in, in parliament to then say <laughs> to a prime minister. <laughs> it could be very unfortunate for it could be very unfortunate and the, the receiving end of it <laughs> precisely precisely so these are things i believe that we need to pay very serious attention yeah definitely uh, just kind of switching the focus a little bit now uh, some commentators have sort of said that uh, the calls for term limits in the caribbean because a lot of these some of these western powers have said oh, you know we need term limits um within uh, these younger democracies quote unquote i mean while the us does have presidential term limits as we all know many of the other um, uh, more one of, many of the other larger countries do not so perhaps, in my mind, the most striking example is um, Chancellor Angela Merkel in Germany, who's been Chancellor since I, since I know myself, as you would say, in the Caribbean. Uh, I mean, but we don't hear any, any calls for term limits um, for, for Germany or, or any of these other Western nations. So is the call for term limits in the Caribbean an example of Western hypocrisy? It could be, um, on the one hand, but also it could be the extent to which, in terms of the more developed countries, they have reached a point where the citizens have um, achieved a level of political maturity 
that they can make those decisions as to who going to lead the country on the basis of some rational thinking as against on the basis of the clientelist-based politics that we have in the region. Mm -hmm. So there no, it is not a simple issue about, you know, Western superiority versus, you know, um, um, developing nations and, you know, looking down at developing nations. I know um, in the main, they think a number of African countries are defined by local political culture in the sense that the citizens are not quite um, astute enough to be able to um, determine whether or not economic, social, and political policies are in the best interest, and, and they vote for personalistic politics. So I guess in places like Germany and France, etc., there are other things, ideology and other things um, play a role in a much different way than they do um, in jurisdictions such as the Caribbean. What I'm saying is that the, the, the issue about term limits today may be a little more moot than they were, say, 30 years ago. And I say so largely because, as I just indicated a while ago, the Caribbean electorate is in fact getting to that point where they are able to make that distinction and they are in fact delivering election results in the Caribbean, which makes the electoral profile in the Caribbean extremely volatile. So that when you look at a country like St. Lucia, maybe come 2021, the SLP would be in office. I don't know, but based on what has been happening in St. Lucia for the last three or four elections, they have alternated between the two, politi between the two political parties. We have just seen a massive um, defeat of the ruling political party in the Bahamas, as well as, well, that is two terms, as well as mm -hmm. in Belize. Um, mm -hmm. So those things take place. So I, do, I, I think that, say, if we're talking in the 1980s or 1990s, I would say, yes, it's urgent. We need that um, urgently, but I'm not sure to what extent that that is required um, except that, again, we are confronted with the anomalies in the region, and the anomalies in the region right now are Dominica and, and, and St. Vincent and Grenadine. So perhaps what we need to do is to take it on a case-by-case -case basis, look at what is taking place in the individual country, rather than make some very broad generalizations, sweeping generalizations of what should and what should what ought to be done and what should not be done. Well, definitely. Uh, as we kind of wind on the discussion um, now, one of the things that Sarah Sanders pointed out as well is that what the practicality of even going about this mission of trying to have constitutional amendments? I mean, if you think about it, the, the failed referenda that we've had and what is required to, to make these constitutional amendments, uh, I, I guess his point was that you know perhaps we should be focusing in in in, in sort of strengthening other aspects of the democracy. Uh, and you mentioned, for example, um, within the, the, the individual political party constitutions and so on. So, given all that we've discussed today. And from your vast experience and, and, and scholarship, what are some of the ways uh, that you think we can improve the functioning of our democracies going forward? Oh, Lord. Um, I, I know I, your thesis question. Is, no, 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 no. That is such a huge, huge question. I do not know how I can really condense it to a couple of sentences. And let me just say that when we look at... Um, Caribbean democracies, the one thing I believe that we have done fairly well um, with is in fact the way in which we have been able to transition um, in, government, in government. That is to say, when one political party has lost the election outside of, um, of Guyana, they have in fact willingly um, you know, considered defeat. And so we have what we call in the Caribbean success story of losers consent they have consented and we have you know been able to um, prevent any constitutional crisis from emerging i think that is important 
But outside of that, we have some serious issues. We spoke about a while ago about Grenada, where for two consecutive terms, and if elections are in fact con conducted in five years and not three years, then for a period of 10 years, literally, we would have had a parliament which has absolutely no opposition. Yes, they did something recently. I understand that. In Barbados, we had a similar situation in 2018. There are grave dangers. And what some people are arguing, however, is that if this is something that is likely to happen with um, the way in which our electoral systems are designed, um, then perhaps what is required um, is that um, we consider things like external voting, which may change what is taking place on the ground, because you may not be able to get involved in a kind of patron-client or clientelistic do um, in Caribbean societies. That's one way to do exactly what um, Reverend Joseph Atherley did in Barbados. And that is to say that, that, that rather than make crossing the floor illegal, what we do is make crossing the floor legal. Now, I say that there and I'm smiling because once we do that, then I can see a, I can see a whole lot of political prostituting taking place in Commonwealth, in Commonwealth Caribbean states. So mm -hmm. I say that because there are countries where they have actually um, encouraged that kind of thing um, occurring so that you can have a very effective opposition in a context where opposition has not been able to, to win. But the other thing too is, I, I, um, somehow I like to link it with the fact that when you look across the Caribbean, we are unfortunately seeing a, a major decline in electoral outcome. I don't want to use this year 2020 to judge what is taking place in the Caribbean because all the elections outside, I think of Belize, I think it's Belize, um, in the elections that have taken place, it's round of elections, COVID, yes, COVID has really impacted electoral turnout. But when we look at the Caribbean, what we have seen is that electoral turnout, with the exception of one or two countries, and Antigua, Antigua is a puzzle. Antigua has always had very high voter turnout. Now, there are a number of reasons for that. Um, but it's still a puzzle, given what we are seeing in the rest of the Caribbean, where we have a diminishing, diminishing um, voter participation. And that suggests is suggestive of the fact that Caribbean voters are very disillusioned with the political mm, leaders the political and the people system. they yeah, see. Christina would have mentioned that as well. Uh, right, with the, the podcast. right, with the people before them. And I think perhaps too, part of the reason is because we are not seeing too much of a turnover in terms of people who present themselves for political office. And that is one way in which um, term limits will, will help as well. Because there mm -hmm. are some parliamentarians who have been in office for 40 years. Now, I know yeah, we, have yeah. of, we have spent a lot of time just talking about prime ministers. When we talk prime about... Prime ministers, but we have a lot of MPs as well who have been there exactly. for a long time. It ought not to be confined just to a prime minister, but we need to talk about the entire parliament. Because, again, one of the unfortunates about um, the way in which we conduct ourselves in the Caribbean, as I said before, you have people in parliament for 30 or 40 years. Some of them have never made a single contribution to... Um, debate. We don't know where they stand on a number of issues. And not only that, because they cons constantly contest an election, what they're doing is to deprive an able-bodied person from contesting. Now, the political parties, and I can understand the logical political parties, they want to win an election. If somebody, therefore, is winning an election, then we'll go for them. Safe but the seat, point is, by, precisely, but the point is, by, this incumbency is preventing a whole host of people who need to put it um, be in parliament from actually contesting election. There are people who have political ambition. There are women, there are minority groups, there are young people like yourself who want to be there, but there are these old people who refuse to go. Now, having said so, I also recognize that there is no, there's no way we can wish away 
the benefits of experience because people learn from experience we cannot have a parliament which is dominated by newbies newbies are inexperienced so we need people um elder statesmen who can actually mentor those individuals that they can see what is taking place you cannot have people in parliament that are seen in the caribbean for example again i refer to senator who know absolutely nothing about parliamentary procedures and their mm-hmm. embarrassment to the country and to the entire region. So these are some of the things. But in addition to that, when we look at our constitution beyond what we have spoken about so far, and therefore by extension of our political system, what we see is that there are issues of accountability, there are issues of good governance that we have to mm-hmm. deal with. Transparency. And I, yeah, the, mm-hmm. Exactly. And we can't dismiss that in a matter of five minutes. That takes an entire session on its own um, where we can perhaps... Um, flesh out some of those issues you know we need to talk about the appointment of judges and right now there's a big issue in Barbados Delano I don't know if you well it's not a big issue in Barbados but it's an issue in Barbados you know Barbados is um, attempting to bring finally into law legislation the integrity in public life Barbados remains one of the last territories as is St. Vincent by the way um, to legislate integrity in, in 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 public life and one of the things Although that has been, so been promised that since 2001 <laughs> well yeah it has been promised but you know i remember having an doing an interview with somebody or somebody did an interview on my behalf with some people in st vincent and they said it will never happen in st vincent for whatever reason these are things we need to discuss but one of the problems with the barbados legislation that we have concerns i'm about you know, i'm a member of um the IGB in Barbados, Integrity Group Barbados, one of the concerns that we have with the existing legislation as it is, is that judges are um, are not included in persons in public life. And we do not accept the reason being offered um, that you can't ter- you can change the terms of conditions and of work of judges. Mm-hmm. Judges, to my mind, are one uh, should be one of the foremost individuals that should be brought in line with integrity mm-hmm. in public life because they are vulnerable. We saw what took Very place in, cool. in, in, in Trinidad and Tobago, where a judge, I think, and the chief justice was actually, they had attempted to bribe the chief, chief justice. So what are we saying? We do not know where the money is. I mean, there are so many commissions of inquiries that have been um, appointed Set in the Caribbean, which have mm-hmm. pointed to the fact that not only political leaders, for instance, Lyndon Findlay and others, have in excess of what they should naturally have earned, given mm-hmm. um, you know what is being paid um, to members of, of, of parliament, um, and they have exceeded that earn, that income by millions of dollars. How do you account for those things? For that, but we, yeah. f- we refuse to deal with those issues. What I'm saying to you is that one of the things in terms of our democracy in the region is that we need to engage in what I like to call um, second generation um, reforms. Where the first generation of reforms are concerned, the Caribbean is doing well. But where the second generation of reforms are concerned, that is what is going to consolidate our democracy and put it up to a higher level. Um, We have refused to engage in those things. And I'm talking about things like political party, political party and election campaign finance. This is a major Mm -hmm. issue that none of us are willing to come to terms with. How do we get away from the fact that to date, in only two Caribbean countries have they ever gotten to the point where we have a parliament which is composed of, of, of a division between the genders of 80-20. Mm-hmm. And that is not acceptable because we have a lot of women in the Caribbean who are politically ambitious and who are, for a variety of reasons, not being, um, um, what I, what, not being recruited by, by mm-hmm. the political parties. But, and so our parliament think... is not reflective of the... Demo- of, um, 
the demographic profile in the region. And I'm not saying that men cannot represent women, but I'm also saying that there are symbolic um, benefits to be derived from having more young people in parliament, from having more women in parliament, from having more disabled people in parliament, for having more, for instance, in St. Vincent and Dominica, this is important um, group. I'm talking about the indigenous people and seeing those people in parliament. These are, these are critical issues that we have to come to terms with. And unfortunately, we don't treat it in the degree of seriousness that we need to treat it with. I mean, I, I mean to, to me, ironically, I, I think what's kind of holding us back in some ways is the fact that we still have these these politicians who've been there for so many years who have refused over the, the course of their careers in politics to tackle these issues. And I think a lot of the young people are more willing to confront with these challenges if given the opportunity to lead. Yeah, so I, I think that's part of the problem in and of itself because uh, some of these issues that we that we that you just mentioned, I think you know the younger generation might be more willing to tackle them. Uh, I think about campaign financing and other things, which I hear being discussed a lot among the young people, and even I have a colleague in Trinidad, um, Nikolai, uh, who would have started the the the, 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 Pulit, the progressive party in Trinidad. These are some of the things that are on the young people's agenda. But until they're in a position to be able to even bring it to the fore, it's not going to happen. The problem is that you see that discussion taking place among political parties which are on the fringes of the political system. Exactly. They do not stand a snowball chance in hell of winning an election, and that is precisely why they are contemplating reforming the regime of political party financing, because as it currently stands, they are the ones who are being denied. They are the ones who are being denied access to parliament um, because they don't have the money to contest an election. I mean, think about it. In one Caribbean country, and I will not call the name of the Caribbean country, in one election, um, in not this wrong of election, but the previous wrong of election, a political party admitted that they spent $30 million in election. $30 million in a single election. That population is less than 100,000 people. $30 million. The opposition political party had $1 million. There is a problem with the fairness of the system, yeah, and therefore yeah. there are things we need to come to we need to come to terms. With. And, and even linked to transparency and so on, where, where a lot of these these um, these incumbent parties wield the government machinery and the government finances and apparatus towards their own political ends. So that's part and parcel of it too. I mean, I agree with you. And, and we, we, when we had Peter and Christina, and we spoke about the use of the COVID nineteen responses uh, leading up to the elections trying to sway voters using state resources. I agree with you. I absolutely agree. I support that position. But I mean, I, I think the discussion has been fruitful. I want to apologize to my colleague. Uh, he was actually in court when, when we started this session. So I think he would, the judge, he was in Zoom waiting for the judge to come on. So I guess he disappeared because the judge um, saw it fit during our recording to, to join the, the Zoom court. You know, things have changed now. Uh, so I, I want to apologize on behalf of my colleague. Uh, but I want to thank you for this discussion. It's been very, to, to me, it's been very fruitful, very enlightening, and I'm sure our listeners are going to uh, engage with it and we're going to get positive feedback. So I want to thank you for, ta for taking the time out. Thank you, Delano. On behalf of myself and Jadrick, thank you for listening to this episode and we will catch you next time.